You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. I'll turn now in your Bibles back to the book of Ecclesiastes. We had a little bit of a break from Ecclesiastes last week when Bruce was here, and that was a much needed break, right, from the monotony of Ecclesiastes. And if you enjoyed that, I have good news for you. Coming up in November, you're going to have three weeks off from Ecclesiastes because uh, I won't be preaching for three weeks in a row. We have Cornell Razor is going to preach one of those Sundays, uh, November 13th, I think, and and uh, I don't know what Cornell is going to be preaching on. And then Dave Rich is going to be preaching on November 20th from First Peter. Uh, I don't. Just, you're not going to want to miss that. I have to say that every time Dave preaches. And then Justin Peters is going to preach on November 27th. And uh, I don't know what Justin's going to be doing, but it will be slow and it will be southern. So you want to be here for that. <laughs> That's all I know for sure. Okay, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and we're going to be uh, reading together verses 12. Uh, actually, verse 18. Verse 18 through the end of the chapter. And before we do, let's bow our head in prayer. Our gracious Father, we are thankful for Your Word, for the clarity of it and the truth of it. We rest in the assurance that we have uh, in Your Word all that we need for life and for godliness. You have blessed us with these things and You have called us to Yourself and You have opened our eyes so that we may behold wonderful things in Your Word. And we pray that today as we spend our time studying in the book of Ecclesiastes that You would cause our hearts to delight in You and in Your Word and in the truth and glory of these things. May You be honored and glorified here through all that is taught and said and meditated upon. In the name of Christ our King, amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're going to be looking today at verse 18 and 20 through 26, and I'm going to read it to you here in just a moment, but I want to give a, a few brief words of introduction first, and then uh, we'll read through it as I kind of give you an outline of what we're going to be looking at uh, this week and next week. I want to draw your attention back to the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 12 that I covered at the beginning or the top of our service this morning. I was in a passage where Jesus was dealing with the dangers of covetousness and greed. And I want to read to you again what he said, the, the story that he told. He said, the land of a rich man was very productive. And this is Luke 12, verse 16 through 21. The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich towards God. And Jesus told that story in order to illustrate the dangers of covetousness. And the man in that story is called a fool because he heaped up earthly possessions without giving any thought to what would become of those possessions after he died. In fact, he never gave any thought to what, uh, uh, to what the reality of death meant for all of his accumulation of the goods that he was heaping up for himself. All he wanted was more things, bigger barns, bigger vineyards, more servants, uh, more and more and more of everything without ever giving thought to what will come of this. And Jesus called him a fool because he never considered the state of his own soul. Tonight, God said, your soul will be required of you, you fool. And yet you have heaped up all of these things and worked and labored without giving any thought at all as to the condition of your soul or the position of your heart before God. And for that reason, he is called a fool. But then Jesus asked a very searching question. Then what will become or who will own all that you have prepared? 
In other words, there's really two things that the man gave no thought to. One of them was, was the condition of his soul before God. And the second one was, who will then get all that you have prepared? You have accumulated all of these things, and who's going to own it? Who will own your more vineyards, your bigger barns, your more possessions? And when your soul is required of you and all of that is handed off to somebody else, who will get it? Now Solomon and the man in Jesus' parable, this story, have something in common. Both of them accumulated and acquired a great degree of wealth. But there was a striking difference between Solomon and the man in Jesus' story. The man in Jesus' story gave no thought at all as to what would become of what he would leave behind after he died, what would become of all of his possessions. Whereas for Solomon, he not only gave thought to that, but it haunted him. At the end of his life, it was as if that was all that Solomon could think about, was what would become of all that I have prepared. So we are in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, where Solomon is reflecting upon these things. In chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes, just a quick thing of review, he he tackles two subjects that he had already addressed in chapter 1, wisdom and work. But in chapter 2, he reflects upon these two things, wisdom and work, but from the vantage point of the shadow that death cast over these two things. And when thinking about wisdom, Solomon realized that wisdom is good in this life, like it is better to walk in light as opposed to walking in darkness. But wisdom has certain limitations. And eventually death robs us of all the wisdom we have accumulated in this life. And we don't need wisdom in the life to come. I don't need to know how to live in a fallen world in the new heavens and the new earth. That has a benefit for this life, but death robs me of that and, and strips me of it. And wisdom does nothing to nothing to uh, inoculate me against death. It does nothing to insulate me from the tragedies of life. And it does nothing, nothing to ensure that all that I have done will not be forgotten. That is his lament in verses 12 through 17. But now Solomon turns to the subject of his labor and the work that he has done and all of the the fruit of his labor under the sun. So you see in verse 18, Solomon says, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. He had hated this. And now the, the emphasis of the rest of this chapter is on his works. His work and all of the labor that he expended in accumulating all of the things that he had. In fact, in verses 18 to 26, the word labor appears 11 times. And then you combine that with the words striving and task, which occur in verses 22, 23, and 26. And you will see what it is that occupies Solomon's mind. I have worked, I have labored, I have toiled at this task, and I have accumulated all of these things, and I have heaped all of them up for myself. And now he is thinking and evaluating all of these things and his labor in light of, or better said, in the shadow of his impending death. And he sees that it is vanity. So it is not just labor that is repeated throughout the passage, but Solomon's favorite phrase in the book of Ecclesiastes, this too is vanity. In fact, you will see it at the end of verse 19. Solomon says, this too is vanity. There are four things here. At the end of verse 21, this too is vanity and a great evil. Verse 23, this too is vanity. And verse 26, this too is vanity and striving after wind. This too is vanity, this too is vanity and a great evil, this too is vanity, and this too is vanity and striving after the wind. So four times in the passage, in the rest of this chapter, Solomon uses that phrase and describes something as being vanity. And so there are four different, separate, and distinct things that Solomon labels as vanity or emptiness and meaninglessness in the passage. And these four things are going to serve as our outline as we work our way through the passage. The first thing that Solomon says is vanity is laboring in order to give it away or to lose it to another man who may be a fool. And that's in verses 18 and 19. Read it with me. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. And yet he will have control 
over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This too is vanity. That's the first one. Laboring in order to lose it all to a man who may be a fool. There's a second thing that is a vanity, and that is laboring in order to lose everything to a man who does not deserve it. And that's in verses 20 and 21. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. The third thing that Solomon labels as vanity is laboring excessively and then not even enjoying the fruit of your labor. And that's a way of losing, basically, the fruit of your labor. Verse 22, For what does a man get in all his labor, in his striving, which he labors under the sun? Notice the repetition of the word labor. You get the sense even from just reading the passage that you're talking about this toil and you're feeling the weight of all of the work under the sun. Verse 23, Because all his days his task is painful and grievous, even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. And that is laboring in order to lose it by not even enjoying it. Verse 24 and 25, There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? And the fourth thing that Solomon labels as vanity is laboring in order without giving any thought to God and then handing it all over to the righteous. Verse 26, For to the person who is good in his, that is God's sight, He has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. So that's our outline. Now, since hope deferred makes the heart sick, I'm not going to give you any hope or anticipation that we're going to make our way through all four of these today, but we are going to make our way through the verse verse 2. Laboring in order to give it to one who may be a fool, and laboring in order to hand it over to one who is undeserving of it. Those are the first two things that are vanity that we're going to look at this morning. So we're going to get from verses 18 through verse 21. So verse 18, oh, by the way, there is a positive statement later on in the passage, and this is for next week. And so you get the bad news today, the, the onerous, grievous stuff that depresses you to the point of suicide. You get that today. Next week, if you manage to live through the entire week, you can come back next week and get a positive blessing that Solomon uh, gives to us in the in verses 24 and 25. There is something that is good in God's sight. In, in all of Solomon's observations about the vanity and the meaninglessness, every once in a while he gives us these gems in the book of something that is a blessing from God, a good thing that God has given to us. And that is the enjoyment of the fruit of our labor. And so that will be next week. But today, first of all, laboring in order to give it to one who may be a fool. Verse 18, Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Now, if you have another translation other than the NASB or the NIV, then it just says, uh, I hated all my labor or I hated all my toil. Uh, modern translations are a bit different on how they render that word that is translated as fruit of my labor in the NASB and in the NIV. And that is because that word primarily has to do with labor or the, the work and the toil itself, but it is kind of related to a very similar word which also incorporates the idea of the the, the possessions, the, the benefits, the, the advantages or the profits that come from the labor. So it's not just the labor, the working itself, but what comes from the labor as well. And because that word kind of has the tone of both of those things, that is why the NIV and the NASB translate it as the fruit of my labor. And I would actually make the argument that I think that what Solomon is emphasizing here that he hated was not the labor itself, but actually the fruit of the labor. So I would, I would agree with the NASB translation because it seems to fit better with the context. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 10, Solomon talked about the labor and all of the work of building the parks and the gardens and everything for himself. Do you remember that? And then he reflected upon it, looked upon it, and he said, this, oh, this was my reward for all my labor. The labor itself was the reward. 
Solomon was not a man who hated work and was lazy and lauded about the castle all the time doing nothing and being waited on hand and foot. I'm sure he was waited on hand and foot. But he was also a man who enjoyed labor and work. He went out and built those things because he enjoyed the task of building them. And so the work itself was something that was a pleasure to Solomon and something that was a reward to Solomon. So it wouldn't make sense for him now to say, I hated all my labor because he has already told us that he enjoyed and delighted in the labor that he had. So it is the fruit of his labor because it is that that he is lamenting handing over to somebody else. It is what he is, it is all that has come in as a result of his labor. Now he is looking at that and he is saying, now I have to hand this over to somebody else. And I'm hating it. Now you can well imagine how this would be the case and how it would be that Solomon would grow to hate the very things that he once loved. So imagine that you are Solomon and you have built a nation that is filled with monuments to your creativity and your skill in your industry and your work and your hard labor. Your name is on everything all around the entire land of Israel. Everywhere you look inside the palace, around the temple, the gardens, the parks, the the ponds, and everything that you have built for yourself, everywhere you look, you see reflections of your own industry. You see the fruit of your own labor. And then as you're wandering around the palace one night, you wander out of the palace, out into one of the parks or gardens that you have built for yourself, and the thought suddenly strikes you, as you're a bit sore than you used to be and move a bit slower than you used to move, the thought suddenly strikes you, one of these days, I'm going to die and I'm going to give all of this to somebody else. Everything that I see, everything around me is going to be handed off to another person. You don't want to think about that for too long, do you? Because that would depress you, much like this sermon would depress you. So instead, you kind of get that out of your mind for a bit, but the next couple of days later when you're walking out of the palace again into that same garden, have you ever had that experience where you're in a certain place and you think about the thing that you were thinking about when you were in that place the last time that you were in that place? So you walk out into that same garden and the thought comes to your mind again. Eventually, I'm going to lose everything for which I have labored. I'm going to hand it all off to somebody else. And you you get it out of your mind again because we don't like to think about death. We don't like to face death. But eventually, that thought keeps returning more and more to your mind. And before long, Solomon was haunted by that thought. Haunted by it. Solomon could not grapple with life under the specter of death. He could not handle that. He could not come to grips with the fact that death would rob him of everything. And so everywhere he looked from there on out, he didn't see monuments to his skill. Instead, he saw reminders of his mortality. That's what he saw. Everywhere he looked, all of the fruit of his labor became reminders to him that he really didn't own it all. And in a matter of a few years, it was all going to vanish and he couldn't keep any of it. And so it was the fruit of his labor itself which he grew to hate. These things that he once loved, he now hated because all of it reminded him that he was going to die and lose all of it to somebody else. And that vexed him. Have you ever had an experience where you you get something that you thought would satisfy you, make you content, and make you happy, and then you get it and you find out that what? It doesn't make me content. It doesn't make me happy. So then you grow to be discontent with that very thing and then eventually begin to disdain that thing and detest that thing. And that thing that you thought six months ago that you couldn't live without, now you realize not only can I live without it, but I would prefer to live without it. You grow to hate the very thing that you once loved. Why? Because it is a reminder to you of your discontentment. It is a reminder to you of your mortality. And that's what it was for Solomon. So if you can glimpse that hatred of the fruit of your labor in one small thing, multiply that times a million for all of Solomon's accomplishments. Everywhere he looked, all he saw was a reminder of his death. And as if that was not enough, he saw the reminder of his death, and then he was vexed by this question, Who knows whether the person to whom I give all of this is going to be a wise man or a fool. I hated all the fruit of my labor 
for which I had labored under the sun. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. The word that's translated labor here, there are two different Hebrew words that are primarily used to describe work or labor in Scripture. Uh, One of them describes the nobility or the virtue in work. And one of them describes the vexing, tedious, monotonous, meaningless, useless, frustrating, um, uh, uh, um, exhausting part of work. So there's there's a noble aspect to work, and then there is an aspect to work that is tedious and exhausting. Solomon is using here the, the word for work that describes the tedious, frustrating, futile nature of work. But there is a part of work, there is an element of our work that is, it is good and virtuous, and we ought to remember that. Work is not a bad thing. Work is not something to be avoided at all costs. It's sometimes surprising how much energy people will put into avoiding expending energy, right? How much work we put into avoiding work, and it ought not to be so. Work is not a bad thing. A work is a good thing. Our God is a working God. And He worked to create creation, And He has always worked. And Jesus said the Father is working even till now. Right now, God is at work expending power and using power, though He's not using it up. He is using power to uphold all things by the word of His power. He holds it all together. And God is at work even right now working out every detail of providence, every detail of human history, your life and mine, to the accomplishment of His purposes. God is constantly working. And so when we create... And we work and we do and we apply our industry and our intelligence and our skills and abilities that God has given to us in laboring with the work of our hands by the sweat of our brow. We are in that moment and at that time mimicking our creator who is a working God. And we glorify him by following him in working as he is working. And so that is the noble or good aspect to work. Work is not a curse upon us. Work was part of the original creation where God gave Adam and Eve work to do in the in the garden. We will have work to do in the new heavens and the new earth. We will work and we will serve God. And God pronounced that work which he had created and given and commissioned to Adam and Eve. He pronounced it very good. With sin came the curse which has has affected that work. It has polluted that work and added an element of our work that is futile and exhausting and vexing and sometimes meaningless and useless. It is the curse upon work that has done that. The curse upon creation and sin because of, because of sin that has done that. It is not work itself. There's a noble aspect of work where when we do it, we honor and glorify God because we are doing it to His glory. But then there is an aspect of work that is laborious and vexing. Solomon is describing that laborious and vexing aspect of work. That is the toil of the labor. And there is something, it is not just the work itself, it is not just the toil itself that Solomon is aware of. But it is the fact that he will have to give it away. Look at verse 18. For I must leave it to the man who will come after me. Though Solomon doesn't talk about death, he doesn't describe it outright. You can tell that that is what is at the forefront of his mind, right? I've worked for all of these things, and now I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And Solomon is there, again, aware of his death and its implications upon his labor and the fruit of his labor. It is as if Solomon realized what Job said in verse chapter 1, verse 21 of the book of Job. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. Not that Job thought he would return to his mother's womb, but a poetic way of saying, naked I came into this world, and naked I shall leave this world. Right? Your corpse will be clothed and put in a casket, but really you are not taking anything with you, including your body. First Timothy 6, verse 7 says, For we have brought nothing into the world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. You've seen the bumper sticker of the t-shirt that says, He who dies with the most toys wins. Seen that? The biblical perspective on that, He who dies with the most toys still dies. Right? And you just end up giving more of your toys to somebody else than the other guy who doesn't have as many toys. 
And the irony in all of this is that with all of salt that Solomon had accumulated, he couldn't enjoy any of it. It is better to be a man, and there's a proverb that says this, and I'm not going to try and paraphrase it. Well, maybe this is a paraphrase of it. I'm not going to try and quote it because I would butcher it. But there, the man who has very little and enjoys all of it is better off and far more blessed than the man who has this world's goods, all of them, and enjoys none of them. It is better to have one thing and enjoy it than to have everything and not enjoy anything. Solomon was a man who couldn't enjoy anything. Why? Because he couldn't get out from underneath that cloud of death and realize, I'm going to give it all away. And it's not just, it's not, it wasn't just vexing upon him to know that he would give it away, but that the person to whom he would give it might be a fool. Verse 19, and who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool. And here's the goad. Here's the, here's the, the knife that just sticks in and twists in us. And he will have control over all the fruit of my labor. Can you hear his frustration? Who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, and he will get everything I have worked for. He will control everything that I control now. That's what Solomon is doing. He is frustrated to the nth degree by this, and you ought to feel this. And who knows whether he will be wise or whether he will be a fool. Now, you and I can put everything in a will or into a trust and try and control from the other side of our deathbed the things that happen with the things that we possess. But you and I both know that those documents are only good as good as the hands into which they fall. Because a bad executor and a corrupt judge and a loophole in the law and everything that you have worked for and everything that you des- desired before you d- became room temperature goes right out the window as soon as they drop you into your pine pajamas and put you in a hole. All of it goes right out the window. Those documents are only as good as the hands into which they fall and you have no control over them And you may give everything that you have worked for into the hands of a man or a woman who is a complete and utter fool. And we've seen this in history, have we not? How many millionaires' estates have been handed into the hands of some worthless individual who was born with a silver spoon and never paddled with a wooden one, who feels entitled to everything that has come his way, and then he ends up blowing it all on wine, women, and song and destroying the estate that was given to him by a wise and hardworking and industrious man. How many times does that happen? That happens far more often than the opposite, where what has been worked for and labored for is handed off into the hands of somebody who is worthy of it and wise and will judiciously use everything in the same way that the previous man has and make use of those things in a way that is honoring and glorifying to God. It is far. It happens far more often than it is squandered. And how many kingdoms have been given over to men and women who are complete and utter useless fools? I can think of two examples in Scripture alone, just in Scripture. One of them would be the kingdom of Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar. You know the story? It's in the book of Daniel. It's Daniel chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar was a man who had built the entire kingdom of Babylon, all of the wealth, the hanging gardens, this great city. He had conquered empires and conquered nations and amalgamated all of them and gathered together people into that one kingdom. It was Babylon the Great. And by great, I'm not describing the morality of the kingdom, but the extent of it and the glory of it, the majesty, the power, and the wealth of it. It was a magnificent and a great kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar died, and he handed it over to Belshazzar, his son. And Belshazzar is known for one thing. You know what it is? He oversaw the destruction of the city of Babylon and the loss of the empire to Darius the Mede. And Daniel chapter 5 tells the story that while Darius the Mede was laying siege against the city of Babylon, Belshazzar decided to hold a feast 
And he had a feast and he brought out all the vessels of the, of, from the temple of God, of Yahweh in Jerusalem. And he had this drunken, immoral festival there inside the palace as a way of sort of thumbing his nose at Darius the Mede who was outside the gate. And Daniel says that there was a hand that wrote on the wall, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. And Daniel was brought in to, to, uh, to interpret that saying. And it was, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And Daniel said, tonight your kingdom has been taken from you. Sovereignty has been removed from you because you didn't learn the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar, your father, who was humbled and learned that it is God who rules in the affairs of men. Belshazzar never learned that lesson. And that very night, while Daniel was in the palace, and the ink was barely dry on the wall, if it was ink, it was on the wall, it's just an expression, but the ink was barely dry on the wall from the hand that wrote on it. And that night, Belshazzar was murdered, he was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom at the age of 62. The end of Daniel chapter 5 says. An entire dynasty was handed to a fool and he lost it all. And there's irony in the fact that Solomon himself is lamenting this because the same thing happened to Solomon. Solomon handed over his kingdom to Rehoboam, his son. First Kings chapter 12 tells this story. After Solomon died, he gave the kingdom and the throne to Rehoboam. And Rehoboam took over. And Jeroboam, another one of Solomon's sons, came back. He was in exile and he was away. And he came back and Jeroboam and some other men went to Rehoboam and they said, Rehoboam, look, all the building projects that dad was involved in and all the taxes and everything, it was a lot, it was too much, it was heavy. Lighten the burden for us, your people. Let's draw it back a little bit. And Rehoboam said, okay, go away. I'll ask some people to get back to you in a couple of days. So Rehoboam consulted all the old men, the wise men who had advised his father David. And those wise men said, yeah, lighten the load a bit. Tell the Speak good things to the people. Lighten the load. Back it off. Lighten the burden a little bit. And these people, the whole kingdom will be yours. They will unite behind you. They will love you. They will be yours forever. That was the advice of the wise men. Rehoboam didn't like what the wise men told him. So he went and consulted some of the younger men, the lads with whom he had gone to school, his homies. And he told them what Jeroboam had proposed. And his homies said to him, no. No, don't, not only don't back it off, not even don't keep it the same, ratchet it up. If, if your father demanded X, you demand X times two. You put the screws to these people and clamp down. Make the burden even greater than your father made it. And so Jeroboam and his friends came back to Rehoboam and they said, what's the answer? You know what King Rehoboam said? He took the advice of the younger man and said, if you think dad's burden was heavy, in the words of the great philosophers, Bachman Turner and Overdrive, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're going to ratchet it up. We're going to double it down. And Jeroboam and all of his friends said, what part do we have in the kingdom of David? And they walked away. And those ten tribes that were in the north separated. The kingdom was divided. Rehoboam lost ten twelfths of what Solomon had handed to him. Why? Because he was an utter and complete fool. Some people think that Solomon is looking at Rehoboam in this passage. And he's wondering. Who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool? I'm not going to know how Rehoboam's going to handle the entire kingdom until he actually has it under his control. He may look wise now, but you never know until he's in charge of everything what he's going to do with it. And yet he's going to have control over all of the fruit of my labor. He's going to control everything I have worked for. I have built this, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to hand it off to Rehoboam. What's Rehoboam going to do with this? You think he lost some sleep over that? You bet he lost some sleep over that. Now, some people say, no, Solomon doesn't have Rehoboam in mind. He's just speaking in generalities. Ultimately, we can't know because Solomon doesn't name Rehoboam in the passage. But we certainly know what the historical context is and what happened as a result uh, after Solomon died. And Rehoboam was a fool and he lost everything that his father had acted wisely. 
And, and this was the, this was what was frustrating to Solomon. Look what he says at the end of verse 19. He'll have control over the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. I accumulate all of this and build all of this by wisdom and turn it over to a man who may or may not be a fool. It is bad enough to lose it, but then to lose it to a man who may be a fool, it's, it's one thing to build it and to have it by wisdom and then to give it over to a man who's going to squander all of it. That's what Solomon looked at, looked uh, was looking at. And that was frustrating to him. To labor in order to hand it all off to a man who may be a fool and to give it away to a man like Rehoboam. That, Solomon says, is a vanity. It's meaningless and emptiness, frustrating and futility. There's a second thing that he says is vanity, and it is in verses 20 and 21, and it is laboring in order to give it over to one who is undeserving of it. Verse 20, Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Again, he is talking about his labor, right? Again, I had completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored under the sun. So he restates it, but he uses a bit of a different word, and this time the word is the word despair, and it kind of has the idea of giving up hope or, or sort of resigning yourself to this is this is what it's going to be. Uh, the word despair there means you, you basically lose up hope that lose hope that anything is going to be different than what you have expected. There are people who think that with them it's going to be different. They're going to build something and gain something and hand it over to somebody who's going to be wise, that they're not going to follow the patterns that have come before. Solomon has come to the point where he just despairs over the work itself. He just loses up hope. It became he's vexed, he's frustrated, he is hating life, verse 17. He hates the fruit of his labor, verse 18. And now he despairs about the fruit of his labor. He has given up any hope that there can be anything good in this. I hope you feel the weight of that. That's the mood of this passage. And it ought to somewhat depress us. Just as we sympathize with Solomon, not because we have the same perspective. In fact, our perspective is different. Our perspective is given in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. At the end of the great resurrection chapter, when the Apostle Paul says, therefore, our labor is not in vain in the Lord. How do we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord? What makes our labor not in vain, but Solomon's labor in vain? Our labor is not in vain in the Lord because of the resurrection. It is because of the resurrection of the dead that we have confidence that what we do in this life will be rewarded and recognized and and have eternal significance in the next. What we do in this life might be buried, it might be lost, it might be forgotten. But because of the resurrection, this is the significance of it that Paul mentions at the end of that chapter. Because of the resurrection, what I do will not ultimately be lost. Because in the life to come, when all things are raised and made new, everything that I have done here will continue into the next life, and I will receive the reward. And even if it's a cup of cold water given in His name. So I spend my entire life making widgets in the corner of a widget factory, and that is all I do, and I do it for the glory of God. Guess what? It's not forgotten. It's not useless. And it's not vain. Why? Resurrection. Because we get the reward. And because we get the reward, it's not in vain in the Lord. That's Paul's point. So in verse 20, Therefore I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I labored under the sun. And now Solomon is going to describe a situation that is far more general. He's not speaking specifically in personal terms here in verse 21, but something that is a bit more general that maybe more of us can relate to. When there is a man, now see he's not talking in first person now, he's talking third person, generally speaking, of others. When there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. It is vain to labor in order to give everything that you gain over to a fool, and it is vain in order if you labor in order to give over everything to somebody who does not deserve it. And there are two ideas here. The first one is that there is an undeservedness to this. In other words, I have labored wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and I give it to somebody not only who has not labored, but he has not labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. 
So the man to whom the fruit of my labor is given is one who is entirely undeserving of anything that I have worked for. Do you get the sense of that? There is an undeservedness to this. There is a great injustice that is being done. When the fruit of one man's labor is given to somebody else who has not worked for it, he has not earned it, and he certainly does not deserve it. Whether he be a wise man or a fool is irrelevant in this equation, because here Solomon is just describing somebody who does not deserve the fruit of his labor. And so generally speaking, there is a man who has labored with these things and accumulated all of these things, and then the fruit of his labor is given to a man who has not worked for him. That is undeserving. And because of the generalized nature of Solomon's language here, it is doubtful that he has in mind an inheritance process where his son would get everything that he has labored for. He seems to be describing here the, the idea that our the fruit of our labor might be turned over and given to somebody who doesn't deserve it, a complete stranger. One man works. Another man, entirely unrelated to him, gets what he has worked for. This is not only a vanity, but it is a great evil. And the new, the uh, NIV translates that, uh, not just meaning, what is it? Misfortune. The NIV translates it misfortune. This is meaningless and a misfortune. That kind of softens the, the moral language and the moral tone that we are supposed to get out of this. It's not just a misfortune. <laughs> Oops. That's a misfortune, right? I spilled milk. Oops. It's not just a misfortune. It is an evil. It's a grievous evil. We're talking about a moral wrong that has been done when one person labors and accumulates things and then has the fruit of his labor given to somebody else. Let me give you some examples of how this happens to us, both willingly and unwillingly. One of them would be an inheritance where, for instance, somebody labors with work and he hands it over to a son or daughter or a grandchild of some sort, uh, somebody connected to him who has not labored or worked with it. That would certainly fit within the parameters of what Solomon is describing here. Another way that this would happen is if you leave no will and no trust and you have accumulated a great estate, your legacy is seized by the government and then sold for pennies on the dollar and the money is used for whatever purposes because you have given it to nobody in particular and so you've given it to everybody specifically, right? That's how the government would view that. That's not just vain. That's an evil. Or, for instance, if you... uh uh, if you were sued or sued by, you sued somebody else to take what belongs to them. This is the third example of this, what we would call frivolous litigation. Now, am I describing every lawsuit that has ever been filed? No, I'm not. Calm down. I understand that there are grievances that are righted in a court of law where things are worked out. There's a proper role of government in those things. But you and I are fools if we don't think that the majority of what passes as litigation, personal litigation in this country is not completely frivolous where somebody covets what somebody else has worked for or what many people have worked for and they find a way to feign some slight or some injustice and then turn around and sue for millions to get the fruits of another man's labor. And then the trial lawyers get half of that and the rest of that fortune goes to somebody who has not worked for it, he does not deserve it, and he does not earn it. That is not just vanity. That is vanity and a great evil. It is also evil, it is evil any time that the fruit of one man's labor is taken or seized by somebody else and given over to somebody else who does not deserve it. Keep this in mind as you listen to presidential candidates promise you and try and outdo each other with all of the things that they are going to take by force from somebody else and give to you. That is evil. Whenever I hear one of them talk about that, all I hear them doing is promising that they are going to commit evil against somebody else for my benefit. That is immoral. It is wicked. 
And I'm not just waxing eloquent about politics here. These are not political issues. These are moral issues. There's a biblical worldview at play here. If I take what I have worked for and labored for, and I use that to help and benefit somebody else, that is charity. If you come and take what I have labored for and worked for and use that to help somebody else that you think deserves it, that's not charity, that's theft. If you have a government agent do it on your behalf, that's delegated theft, but it is theft nonetheless. It is still a great moral evil. Anytime you take what belongs to somebody else because they have worked for it and give it to somebody else who does not deserve it, Solomon says this is empty, it is vanity, and it is a great moral evil. Scripture commends industry and condemns indolence. It commends labor and condemns laziness. And it is immoral and wrong for anybody's fruit, for any fruit from some man's labor to be given to somebody else against his will. That is why scripture universally condemns greed, covetousness, jealousy, and theft universally all the way across the board. Because it is a moral evil. And it, it, it is a vain thing. Scripture says if we don't work, we don't eat. And we ought to stop stealing, instead work with our hands so that we may labor and produce not only enough for ourselves, but for our family and those who belong to our household. And then that we may have extra, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, to give to others and to do good to other people. That is our individual responsibility. That is the good use of the fruit of God's, of the labor that God has given to us. So God has given to us skills and abilities and, and callings in life in which we are to labor and work with industry and skills and the gifts that he has given to us with the expectation that we would then enjoy the fruits of that and be able to enjoy it and not have it taken from us, that we would be able then to use the fruits of that labor to do good to other people. That is a good and charitable and righteous and godly and holy thing. And that that fruit of our labor would then be protected so that we have a right to it and that we can use it. And then that we can enjoy it because that is the blessing and the gift of God to those who have labored for it. It is a blessing to be able to enjoy what God has given to you. So if your job or your task or your work is to work eight hours a day and you make a hundred dollars, that is the lot that God has given to you and you ought to enjoy it and you ought to work hard for the glory of God and enjoy the fruit of his labor. And if you work eight hours and you make $10,000, you have the same responsibility that is yours to use. You enjoy it, you work and you do good to others with it. That is what God has called us to. That is the blessing. That is the blessing. Enjoying the fruit of the labor is the blessing that comes in the labor itself. So there is good news in the passage. And it's not that all labor is meaningless and all work is useless, but it is that God has richly given to us the blessing of the fruit of our labor, and we ought to enjoy that thing and enjoy it for the glory of God and use it for the good of other people. Now, there, that is the wisdom that Solomon offers in the positive statement, which we'll look at next week. So let's pray together. Our gracious and loving God, we thank you for the mercy of providing for us as you have. Make us mindful of our responsibility to use all that you have entrusted to us for your glory. Keep us mindful of the promise of resurrection and the hope of the resurrection and what that means for us and for the enjoyment of the fruit of our labor. We love you and we thank you that you have put us in this world to use our gifts, our time, and our talents, our treasure for your ends. And we pray that you would keep us continually about the business of honoring you and glorifying you through those gifts that you have given to us. May we never see our labor or our work as something that is a curse, something to be avoided but rather something that we are to use for your glory and then to enjoy the fruit of it. Thank you for these things and these reminders today in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. 
We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.